Pints with Jack, Season 2, Episode 11. The Great Divorce, Chapter 7. The Hard-Bitten Ghost. Friends, welcome to the Pints with Jack weekly podcast, where David and I have the distinct privilege of enjoying a drink together, unpacking the writings of C.S. Lewis, and discovering the truth and beauty of Christianity. We are currently in Season 2, in unlocking the treasures hidden within our favorite C.S. Lewis work, The Great Divorce. My name is Matt, and as always, I am joined by my friend David. And David is a man who on multiple occasions has kept me from, quote-unquote, going back. I thought you were going to talk about me being hard-bitten and cynical and mean. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking more charitably when we learned about him asking that question in a chapter. He said, are you thinking of going back? That is a temptation for all of us in a spiritual journey when things get tough to be like, you know what? It would just be easier not to do this. And there's times where I've come to you and honestly, I'm hoping you'll give me a different answer or you'll be more charitable and, and just let me c- cut some slack and the way that I want to cut slack on myself. And you said, no, this is, this is how we're supposed to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, if David says it, I believe it. <laughs> I just assumed you were being nicer because of my mother's death threats. (laughs) My mother? Oh my goodness, this is great. I shouldn't be telling you this because it'd be more funny if it comes from a surprise from her. Um, She told you that I'm the son she never had? (laughs) That's exactly right. It was the harshest (laughs) thing I've ever heard. But no, she, she went and visited my sister and her new granddaughter down in Ohio, so five hour drive. And she listened to 10 or 15 of our podcasts to get caught back up. Nice. And one of them included Crossing Podcast episode, I think it was 25 in Mere Christianity, where you called her out. I made a comment how she never listens. She, she hasn't listened to many of ours. And you said, shame on you, Mrs. Bush. <laughs> and she heard it. <laughs> and so she's, she was like, I'm going to send him an email directly. <laughs> I told her you can go to restlesspilgrim.net or pineswithjack.com and he'll get it. Well, I would like to apologize, or at least when she, finally, when she finally listens to this episode, I would like to apologize for that. Which at this point will be another <laughs> two months from now. <laughs> so you've got some time. Oh, and she was just dying laughing. Well, you know, sometimes you have to keep parents in line. <laughs> All right, time for the quote of the week. Okay, I, this one was kind of difficult. There are a few that I wanted to choose. Uh, but in the end, I went with these words from The Hard-Bitten Ghost. That's just where all the parsons and moralists have got the whole thing upside down. They keep asking us to alter ourselves. But if the people who run the show are so clever and so powerful, why don't they find something to suit their public? That's a great quote. But with our drink of the week, this week is getting even less exciting. (laughs) At least I've been very unexciting with the Exodus 90. At least you've been able to carry some of the slack, but it sounds like now this week because of Lent, you aren't to me drinking alcohol either. Yeah, this is right. I've given up alcohol for Lent. But I did decide to go for something a little bit exciting. I'm having a coffee, but I'm having an oat milk coffee. Ooh, wow. Because normally I just subsist on almond milk and soy milk. And uh, Kate, the girl who makes people cry if they say anything bad about the Space Trilogy, she had recommended (laughs) oat milk. So I gave that a go. It's really rather nice. Oh, that makes me smile. I miss Kate. It's been a while. I'm at the typical LaCroix today, and I'm an addict, which is getting very dangerous that this is going to become a Lenten thing I give up. Probably next Lent, I'm going to be giving up LaCroix and drinking alcohol because it's become such a bad habit. Well, let's toast to that. Cheers. Cheers.
So although we've had episodes coming out each week, it's actually been a little while since you and I recorded together. We recorded a few of them up front and then I had that interview with Joseph Pierce. So uh, bring me up to speed and, and the listeners up to speed. What have you been up to? Well, first, I've deeply missed you the last few weeks. <laughs> I've missed you too, Matt. It just hasn't been the same. No. Well, no, I mean, we're entering the Lenten season. So I would say my life has been incredibly filled with between Exodus 90, which is all about a fasting and asceticism and then throw on top Lent right now. My life has been really filled with a lot of spiritual things. I've been on a journey with two confirmation individuals, one an adult coming uh, into the Catholic Church, and then my cousin, more the traditional process. And I look at those as great honors and privileges, because you have a chance to pour into someone who's open to it. And that's not every day you get that privilege. So that's been consuming some of my reading and some of my study and trying to answer the questions well. So it's been a lot heavier dosage than usual of spiritual, theological things. And so I had a friend ask me if I wanted to do this, this 33 days prayer thing with him after Lent. I said, I'm going to pass. <laughs> I need a bit of a break. <laughs> I've actually got two of my friends entering the church this year. Jerry, who comes to our C.S. Lewis book club, he's going to be baptized. And my next door neighbor, Megan, and listener to the show and former sponsor of the show. Oh, yes. Which does kind of beg the question why we haven't been sponsored again since. But, <laughs> you know, after Lent, obviously, uh, <laughs> uh, she's going to be entering the church as well. Oh, that's fantastic. Also, during this time, I've been really focusing on studying the resurrection and the historical evidence for it. So I've been reading this book called Cold Case Christianity, and he's a, a cold case homicide detective, which means these are cases that are 25, 30 years old. So he puts together and uses his tools to study the resurrection, to build a case on it. Uh, that person is Jay Warner Wallace, and he follows us on Twitter. Are you <laughs> kidding me? Oh my goodness. That is the greatest thing ever, actually. I really hope he listens to this. We love your work. Uh, for listeners who know, I don't really work the social media, so I, didn't, I don't know who follows us. I had no idea he was a listener. So thanks for writing this book. I'm quite intrigued with it so far. And finally, though, I really enjoyed listening to the Joseph Pierce episode. That was really wonderful. What was that recording it, though? Uh, it was great. Uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. It was really nice to speak to a fellow Englishman. Uh, <laughs> I was a little nervous about the subject matter, talking about why didn't C.S. Lewis become Catholic. I can imagine non-Catholics being a little irritated at that. But... Or being like, well, obvious for, for obvious reasons, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought the interview went really well, and I thought we covered a lot of stuff that would be interesting, regardless of whichever denomination you belong to. Oh, I completely agree. It was a very interesting conversation. And we've had some really great feedback from both Catholics and non-Catholics alike from New Zealand and Norway were the last two people that I spoke to. We have actually had from several non-Catholics have reached out to me and just asked some more questions. Because in the interview, we spoke about some of the issues that Lewis struggled with, like the papacy and like Mary. And we didn't really try and offer a defense for those or an explanation as to why Catholics believe what they believe about the Pope or Mary. And you and I did have a little conversation as to should we try and address that stuff here on the show? We haven't completely decided yet, uh, but listeners, there might be something in the works where we bring on a different guest, kill a few birds with the same stone and do an episode related to that. And as listeners hear this... If you're someone who feels strongly one way or the other of, 
hey, we we don't want to learn about that. This is just pure Lewis. Stay with Lewis. Or no, I actually, after that, agree. It would be intriguing to do a side episode just to expand on it a bit more. Tweet us. Send a DM to David through Instagram. Send an email through our Pints with Jack website. And the feedback, we, we're, we're trying to think what's best for the listeners and for the sake of the integrity of the podcast. So your feedback is greatly welcomed. So what else have I been up to since we last spoke? Uh, I've booked a trip to Seattle. Uh, if anyone's going to be in Seattle, uh, I think it's the 17th and 18th of May, there's a conference on Eastern spirituality. So Eastern Catholic and Eastern Orthodox. Uh, it's called Growing in the Likeness of God. And if you've listened to this podcast, you know what that means. Theosis. <laughs> and speaking of talks, I've been giving some of my own. I've been up in Los Angeles, and I also flew out to Kansas to speak at a conference. And which one was the talk that you uploaded? Was that the LA or the Kansas one? I've uploaded all of them. In Kansas, I gave two talks. Uh, the first was called, What is the Point of Christianity? Which, again, if you've listened to this podcast, you know I'm going to be talking about theosis. The other talk was called, We Are All Called to Ministry doing what you love for Jesus. And then when I went to LA, I gave a, a longer version of the what is the point of Christianity talk. And that was called something different. That was called uh, Life in Christ, Not Mere Improvement, But Transformation. The one you gave in Kansas that you turned into an actual episode or after hours episode on this was brilliant. So listeners, if you sporadically jump to episodes and you don't religiously follow them, shame on you. Go back to that one. It was a few episodes ago. and. It's obviously not The Great Divorce, but it's very much C.S. Lewis. When he sent it to me wondering if he should upload it, I listened to it. And I'm like, there's no way you can't upload this. It's probably the best 15-minute summary of Christianity, the point of it. And you can send it to anyone, and they find it beautiful. I actually sent it to a few of my atheist friends who are intrigued by Christianity, and they loved it. It is so good. Plus, not to boost David's ego at all, but they said, wow, David's really funny. So if you're looking for a little humor as well, it's a, it's a great episode. He did a great job on it. Anyway, we are already running long. So let's get on with the 150-word summary of today's chapter. Cue the music. And let's see what David wrote. Matt, you got to pretend that you wrote this one. <laughs> Heading downstream, Lewis meets the hard-bitten ghost who asks him if he's going back to the town. The ghost was a well-traveled man on earth, but singularly unimpressed by what he saw. He's likewise disappointed with both heaven and hell. He argues it's impossible to stay in heaven due to the hardness of the environment. When Lewis suggests that they will become acclimatized, the ghost said he's been told that lie his entire life. He cynically asks Lewis what he would think of a hotel which told you that you'd grow to enjoy eating bad eggs eventually. He also complains that there's nothing to do and that it's up to the management to find something that doesn't bore us. The ghost prepares to leave and asks Lewis if he'll join him. Lewis cheekily responds that there doesn't seem to be much point in going anywhere on your showing. Excellent. Okay. Well... As listeners will recall, two episodes ago, when we were looking at The Great Divorce, we read about how the bowler-hatted ghost was trying to take apples from heaven and bring them with him back to hell. If you recall, there was a tree with golden apples beside a waterfall, and we discovered that the waterfall was really a giant water angel. And he told the ghost that he wouldn't be able to take those apples back with him, and that he should instead stay and learn how to eat them. 
Unfortunately, the ghost either doesn't hear or just completely ignores him. And with backbreaking labor, he struggles away with a small apple. And so we pick up today's chapter right after that. The bowler-hatted ghost has just left, and Lewis realizes that he can't really bear the presence of the angel, so he moves away. And this hooks into what we said in previous weeks about the heavenly landscape, about reality, about holiness. You know, Lewis has come a long way since he's arrived in heaven, and he's grown more substantial, but he's not yet a native of this land. Yeah, that, that, the word he used that jumped out to me, he felt self-conscious. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't stand in his presence. And we've talked a lot about that. We talked about that last episode and that fear that can happen when you're confronted with truth, fear of not being enough, fear of being found out. And so it's amazing that he still has that. And it's exactly what you said. He's still on a journey and that's not going to completely go away until he's fully transformed. And we're going to come across another ghost where this is their major problem. Mm. Anyway. Lewis tells us that he tries to play it cool and walk away nonchalantly. <laughs> you can almost imagine him whistling awkwardly as he moves away from the giant water giant. That would be great. I really think they should turn this into a movie, but that's a rant for another time. But what's interesting is that although he doesn't actually emphasize it in the text, my reading of the chapter is that he seems to be heading back in the direction that he came back towards the bus, because you'll recall that he arrived at the waterfall by walking upstream. But in this chapter, Lewis tells us that he walks on the flat stones downstream. Hmm. Why do you think that is? Well, first of all, none of this crossed my mind when I was reading it, but I I think think you're exactly correct. I didn't catch that point. But now going back to the first paragraph where he says, with the water giant, he had a fear of being in his presence and he felt self-conscious. Maybe that was slowly pushing him away. Yeah, he's starting to shrink back. Yeah. In this chapter, he also tells us that he's starting to get tired. Yeah. So it could also be that he's just naturally leaning towards the path of least resistance. If he goes back to the bus, if he goes back to the Greytown, his feet won't hurt anymore. (laughs) And I mean, obviously from here, we've got an image of the spiritual life. I've had that in many different ways. We're in different relationships, not even like romantic relationships, but in friendships in my earlier on in my journey as I was becoming friends with very strong people in their faith, it almost started to become scary because you realize you're getting so in deep and you're not quite there yet. You're, you still have that old part of you that you haven't killed off. And I felt myself sometimes turning away or not fully jumping in because I was really afraid of what it would mean, I guess, if I fully entered into these relationships. Remember, Lewis says something very similar in Mere Christianity when he talks about the bios and the zoe. When he talks about your natural life, it will fight tooth and nail because it knows that if this zoe comes in, that it means a dying to self. Yes. So I think you're spot on. That's probably what's happening here. We see that a little bit. And reading this section, it put me in mind of something really dumb that, well, I know I do it, so I assume other people do it as well. It's that (laughs) when we make advances in the spiritual life, we somehow try and convince ourselves that we deserve some kind of reward by indulging a sinful appetite. Mine's a little different than that, but it's, it's, I've done so well, it's okay if I mess up this time. Exactly. Like, it's not necessarily, I'm not necessarily telling myself I deserve this indulgence, but I justify, like, it's okay, I've done quite well. Mm-hmm. And it's on this return journey and in, in this state of fatigue that Lewis comes across the hard-bitten ghost. Now, in case listeners are unfamiliar with the term hard-bitten, 
as we'll see, someone who is hard-bitten is someone who is cynical. They're skeptical, they're disillusioned, they're jaded. They're a glass-half-empty sort of person. I turned and saw a tall ghost standing with its back against a tree, chewing a ghostly cheroot. And yes, we know you're going to look this up. And yes, I'm genuinely curious what it means. <laughs> uh, a cheroot is a cigar where both of the ends are open and untapered. That would be a very heavy puff. If you don't have, when it's narrowing down, that kind of adds a bit of a, a hindrance to the amount of smoke you can get in. This is just wide open. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if I'd like that. No, I don't like cigars in general. Anyway, he says, It was that of a lean, hard-bitten man with grey hair and a gruff but not uneducated voice. The kind of man I have always instinctively felt to be reliable. So let's just paint this picture of what Lewis thinks is a reliable man. An old person, grey hair, educated voice, smoking a cigar. It sounds like C.S. Lewis. He's describing himself. Mm, It's not a million miles away from it. I wouldn't have said that Lewis has a gruff voice. He also doesn't have hair, am I correct? This is true. He was was rather bald. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But what this puts me in mind of is actually my old chemistry teacher from high school, Mr. Grimshaw. Great name. Grimshaw, yes. Sounds like like Grimwald or something (laughs) from Harry Potter. But he was was gruff, very, very smart. When you actually got to know him, he was also really, really kind. But he commanded a certain authority. He always struck me as a sort of sergeant major type of character. Uh, the ghost initiates a conversation by asking Lewis if he's thinking of going back to the Grey Town. And Lewis admits that he's not really sure. And the ghost says that, well, he's definitely going back because he's seen about all there is to see. And he rejects the idea that it would even be possible to stay. And he calls it propaganda. It made me wonder how many times have skeptics told Christians that heaven is simply propaganda. Here's what he says. Of course... There never was any question of our staying. You can't eat the fruit, and you can't drink the water, and it takes all your time to walk on the grass. A human couldn't live here. All that idea of staying is only an advertisement stunt. And Lewis actually asks him, well, if it's impossible to stay, why did you come here in the first place? <laughs> His answer was great. The, the ghost replies that he came just to have a look around. <laughs> and as this was the sort of person he is, and he'd always done the same on Earth. And here we start to learn a little bit more about the ghost. He's exceptionally well-traveled. He's seen Peking, Niagara Falls, the Pyramids, Salt Lake City, the Taj Mahal. And he's been utterly unimpressed by them all. (laughs) He says, not worth looking at. They're all advertisement stunts, all run by the same people. There's a combine, you know, a world combine that just takes an atlas and decides whether they'll have a sight. Now, here's where I want to push back a little bit on Lewis, on this character. And this is only just coming to me now. I would say this is a really great thing. Typically, if someone, the, the thought of not his mindset of nothing impresses him, but I'm referring to his, his just to have a look around. That's great if people just come to Christianity and say, I just want to, I've heard a lot about this. Let me just give it a little bit of a look. That's great. And actually a good starting point. The hope is they meet the right person and they should be drawn in pretty quickly if Christianity is true of the beauty of it. Now, of course, you can't control who's feeding the stuff into them and if they're really seeing it. But I would imagine more often than not, that's a good thing. I take your point. (laughs) But in Lewis's defense, I would ask, but is he going to these places to be wowed? Is he going to these places to encounter beauty? Or is he going to these places so he can say he's been to these places? And they're kind of rubbish. 
Yes, but if it's truly beautiful, couldn't it still wow him? It could, but I would argue that his heart has to be open. There has to at least be a crack for that to get through. Okay, touche. That's a good one. (laughs) But it really is quite impressive how unimpressed he was by all of these places. And it made me think about where have I visited where I've actually been rather disappointed. I I could only think of a few places. Uh, I'm going to apologize to Americans. I was kind of disappointed with the Golden Gate Bridge. But that was because of what I expected and how I saw it. I cycled across it and it was just... When you see it that close, it's just a bridge. And it's red. It's not golden. They lied to me. (laughs) I'm thinking the same thing with the Brooklyn Bridge. It's just, I mean, it's not nearly held to the magnitude of, of the Golden Gate Bridge, but I was up at the top of the World Trade Center, One World Trade Center this past weekend and looking down and I'm, I'm seeing the Brooklyn Bridge. I'm like, everyone tells me I've got to see it. I'm looking at it. I'm like, that just looks like a bridge. What's so special? Well, you see, with my experience of the Golden Gate Bridge, I've visited San Francisco several times since that time. And I can now look back on my experience of the Golden Gate Bridge and I know what I did wrong. I encountered it in the wrong way. My first encounter with the Golden Gate Bridge should have been at sunset from a distance, which I think just goes to speak to the spiritual truth that very often it depends on where you're standing and what kind of person you are as to how you actually experience something. Ah. If anyone out there wants to read one of Lewis's essays, Meditation in a Toolshed covers this very idea. I'd also say too, what we were talking about just a second ago, Sometimes the way it's presented to you. Mm-hmm. And so the role that we have as Christians to do a good job for other individuals on presenting the narrative well. I've had countless individuals share with me just directly from our podcast, I've never heard truth described that way. Like it's quite appealing. It's quite attractive. And so you, sometimes you only have one opportunity with a person to intrigue them. And so that's a great privilege. And we need to do a good job as Christians with that. So bringing it back to my Golden Gate example... I should have gone to a native San Franciscan and have them show me the Golden Gate Bridge. Yes, there you go. I'm actually now going to go see the Brooklyn Bridge at sunset. I bet that's a very different experience. (laughs) Yes, you have to report back to it. I will. Since I've ragged on one American site, I'll give one English one just to balance it out. Stonehenge. Utterly disappointing. It's a bunch of stones in a field. They're kind of big, but they don't really know what they were for or how they worked. And they give you these little uh, audio guides that are just hilarious, done by the local amateur dramatic society. (laughs) I I second that. And actually, earlier this week, I came across a website that listed the top 50, I think, overrated tourist traps. Have you been to any of these? Plymouth Rock? No. Really disappointing. I've seen that one. If they listed Times Square, I wouldn't say Times Square was disappointing at all. I would say it's overwhelming more than anything else. In fact, linking it back to The Great Divorce... For me, coming to Times Square was like coming to that waterfall. I was on sensory overload. I was incredibly disappointed with Times Square. Really? And I've now gone many times, well, but many times living here, probably three or four. Well, first of all, I work two blocks from Times Square. But when my friends come, of course, I add that to the list. I show them where I work and then I, you know, we go to Times Square. It's just a (laughs) bunch of flashing billboards and really expensive restaurants and drink shops again. It's like every other place. I don't really see what's different about it than any other part of New York except the big billboards. Yeah, big billboards are fun. (laughs) Uh, In the article, they also listed the Tower of London, which I fervently disagree with. That's actually one of my favorite things to do in London. Same here. That was awesome. And they also had both the Taj Mahal and the pyramids. What is with this (laughs) list? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I, I didn't check the author of the article, so it might have been the hard-bitten guy. <laughs> there we go. That's got to be the answer. Anyway, I wanted to put it out there. Listeners, please message us on Twitter and Instagram with your most disappointing tourist attractions. That's a good one. I would love to see what people say. Anyway, returning to our hard-bitten ghost, the funny thing is that he's even disappointed with hell. (laughs) He wanted red fire and devils, but even hell is, as the youths say today, kind of meh. Lewis tells the ghost that he actually prefers it here in heaven. And while the ghost's objections to this place do seem to have some validity, that the food and drink are too hard to eat, the grass hurts their feet... He says that he's heard that if they stay here, they'll become acclimatized, they'll become even more solid. But not only does the ghost disbelieve this, he claims that it's the same lie he's been told his entire life. He says, They told me in the nursery that if I were good, I'd be happy. And they told me at school that Latin would get easier as I went on. After I'd been married a month, some fool was telling me that there were always difficulties at first. But with tact and patience, I'd soon settle down and like it. And all through two wars, what didn't they say about the good time coming? If only I'd go on being a brave boy and go on being shot at. Of course, they'll play the old game here if anyone's fool enough to listen. What do you make of that? What do you think's going on here? The short answer is he's just been a person that's been incredibly disappointed with everything he's been told. But as I was reading that, I have to imagine it's it's kind of mean to the guy. Something really wrong with him. Like, And my guess is actually, you know what? My guess is he's not fully committing to any of these things. In the same way that we, we, you mentioned that with the places he goes to, here he's not fully committing. He just came to see it. He didn't come to truly see it, to truly experience it. Because if you really do study Latin really for a while, you are, it is going to get easier. I, th- I think there's definitely some, something there. I can't help but feel, though, he's kind of committed in the two wars where he's getting shot at. Uh, (laughs) That's the the one I probably disagree with. (laughs) The thought that crossed my mind is that perhaps focusing on Latin is a good example. It's true that Latin does get easier as you go on in the sense that you are more familiar with it and therefore you can read more of it, understand more of it. But it doesn't mean that the challenges come to an end. It means that you start learning more advanced Latin. And so maybe he was disappointed because he expected it to be easy for all of the challenges to eventually cease. And you can imagine it the same in his marriage. (laughs) I hear from people who are married that, yes, it does get easier, but that doesn't mean that the challenges stop. Um, The one thing he seems to be missing in all of these... Maybe not Latin. I don't know if God gives you grace to get through Latin, but... <laughs> As someone who survived three years of Latin, he does give you grace, because that's the only way that I survived. We had this little rhyme. Latin is a dead language, as dead as dead could be. It killed the ancient Romans, and now it's killing me. Oh, that's great. Uh, but if you go through some of those and unpack them, virtue leading to happiness, you need God's grace. To get to the point where marriage is blessed, um, God's grace is so helpful in that process. And to get to the point where you become acclimatized to heaven that we're seeing in this whole book, you need God's grace through it. So maybe he's missing the one key ingredient in all of this, too. That he's trying to do it in his own strength. Yes. Rather than calling on a higher power. Yes. Hmm. Yeah, I think there's something to that. But the ghost grows increasingly conspiratorial, and he rejects Lewis's suggestion that perhaps things are different here in heaven. He says, it's never a new management. You'll always find the same ring. All this stuff up here is run by the same people in the town. They're just laughing at us. 
The ghost then goes on to challenge the entire notion that heaven and hell are actually at war. He points out that if that were true, heaven is clearly strong enough to go and attack and sweep hell out of existence. And this makes Lewis feel rather uncomfortable because he can see that the ghost has a point. I'm really curious your thoughts on this part because you and I now, because of this, have been in positions where people will ask us like apologetic type questions. And it's a great privilege to be there. But one that I've gotten on multiple occasions is, if God is all powerful and completely loves and desires us, like how, how can he, he's failing. He's not winning us over. He's failing. I mean, some of us are going to hell or choosing hell, I should say, because we put our, our lives ahead of his. And so how, how can you reconcile that if he's all good and all powerful and all loving? Well, I think the important point was the correction that you gave yourself there. We choose hell. This entire question is going to be unpacked over multiple chapters, so we will come back to this. But I think my short answer would be, we have free will, and we therefore have to choose heaven. Think back to heavenly and hellish creatures. We become the kind of creature that can live and would want to live in heaven. I think it's rather like rescuing a fish from a river and putting it safely on the bank. The fish isn't going to like it. <laughs> <laughs> but wouldn't you, wouldn't you say, though, if God is all-knowing, even though David has free will, he knows exactly what David needs to be compelled. Yeah, I, I would question how much of your free will is really left at that point. And we're going to meet a character in a couple of chapters, and he's going to unpack that a little bit more about the tension between what God wants for us and what we actually choose, and the necessity of being able to freely choose that. The ghost then goes on and even questions the good of being rescued from hell. Regarding heaven, he says, what the hell would there be to do here? And I think there's a subtle wink here in the text. What the hell would there be to do in heaven? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> That's the point of heaven. Hell can no longer pollute it. I like that. I miss that, actually. Anyway, Lewis replies to the ghost's objection by asking him what there would be to do in heaven either. And the ghost sees this as some kind of victory of his theory that heaven and hell are run by the same firm. He says, they've got you either way. This is very Gnostic, equal and opposite forces of good and evil versus there being a dominant force of good and then evil is a perversion of that force of good. Lewis had written a bit about that, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, that's in book two of Mere Christianity. But the difference there is in Gnosticism, you have the good being and the evil being fighting it out. They are actually on their own sides and they are in a real battle. He's claiming here that that battle is merely for show, and there's really one malevolent force behind both. Who just enjoys seeing us pitted against each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lewis then asks a great question. He asks him, what would you like to do if you had the choice? This was a great question, I agree. Mm. And this is why I chose this for the quote of the week. The ghost says, it's up to the management to find something that doesn't bore us, isn't it? It's their job. Why should we do it for them? And he then unpacks that by showing how this attitude has been his lifelong philosophy. He says, that's just where the Parsons and the moralists have got the thing upside down. They keep on asking us to alter ourselves. But if the people who run the show are so clever and so powerful, why don't they find something to suit their public? Mm. It's like he's saying, try and impress me, but don't give me anything too hard. <laughs> he wants morality to fit him as he is not how he should be. And he actually gives a very Lewisian analogy. 
He asks Lewis how he'd feel if, after being given bad eggs at a hotel, you complained, and the hotel manager came and told you that, well, if you kept eating them, you'd grow to like bad eggs in time. Where do you think that analogy breaks down? What's, what's the problem with it? It, it comes with comparing heaven, first of all, to eggs. It's assuming that heaven is uh, something bad that you have to grow to like. Mm-hmm. I think the better analogy that I've experienced in my own life, actually through the Whole30 diet, is when you give up all these added sugars, is you've spent your whole life eating a bunch of sugar, and then you try fruit, a really delicious fruit from a tropical place right off the tree, and it still doesn't taste sweet because you've been so used to that potent sugar uh, and sugary stuff and chocolates that you don't even enjoy the sweetness of fruit anymore. When you detox yourself from it, you eventually realize how incredibly sweet and what a gift a good piece of fruit can be with pure taste buds. I think that's more of a better analogy. I think that is a fantastic comparison. The fundamental flaw in his analogy is he's assuming that the eggs are bad. He's assuming a fault with the eggs, not with himself. Yes. The ghost then announces that he's leaving, and he asks Lewis if he's coming back to the bus with him. And Lewis, rather depressed, he replies that if what the ghost says is true, if both of the places are controlled by the same firm, well, then there's not much point going anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) That's great, actually. He points out the flaws of this guy's whole entire logic. Lewis comments that at least here in heaven it's not raining, unlike the grey town where there was that constant drizzle. And the ghost points out that when it does rain, because, you know, he's cynical and he's therefore convinced that it will rain for certain, says that the kind of rain that they get in this country would really full of holes. And so, on that note, he leaves. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with the machine gun type bullets falling down on you. Good day, sir. So, I suppose wrapping up, what do we really make of this hard-bitten ghost? I'd say he's just lost the capacity to experience joy. And he's kind of self-centered because he thinks that the world revolves around people trying to control him. It's actually a very odd form of pride. And he strikes me as someone who isn't really willing to be vulnerable, to be hopeful. Because to hope, to be vulnerable, is to allow yourself to be, as he would say, taken in. It opens you up to being hurt. Think of the four loves, where Lewis says that to love is to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. That means to be hurt. Yeah. To be let down. And since he's closed himself off, he's also lost the capacity to believe or trust anyone. He actually reminds me of the dwarves. I know you haven't read it, but at the end of the final book of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle, there are these dwarves. And after they've been manipulated by the book's antagonist, by the end, the dwarves stop trusting anyone. They say, we haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarves are for the dwarves. And the really sad thing is that wonderful things then start to happen around them, but they're blind to it. Mm. Because they won't be taken in, they can't be taken out of where they are. Brene Brown, power of vulnerability. If you mute vulnerability, you mute joy. Yeah, you mute sadness, you mute loneliness, but you also mute joy, you mute beauty. You mute them both. They're two sides of the same coin. I think another thing that we can see from this hard-bitten ghost is that he doesn't want to change. He wants heaven on his own terms. Your best Instagram post you sent to me before you posted it with the port wine and Jesus, the, the head of Jesus with the blood and the, the crown of thorns on him. And he said, I didn't go to Christianity to make me happy. A port of wine would have done that. And then what does the second half say? A port of wine? A, por- a bottle of a port. A bottle of port. I don't ever have port. <laughs> Try that you, again. You say the quote. No, this is a great little bit. You say the quote. <laughs> um, I think it's, he said something like, 
I didn't go to Christianity to make me happy. I knew a bottle of port could do that. For anyone that wants to remain comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Yes, and then you put the picture of Jesus with the crown of thorns. And so that, that for us isn't necessarily a crown of thorns, but that changing is very uncomfortable. And sometimes it is a crown of thorns. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, unfortunately. There's something else I wanted to say. I think that there is a Christian version of this hard-bitten ghost. As I was reading this chapter, I thought of when we go to church with that kind of attitude, when we expect to be entertained, we expect to be met where we are and not challenged at all. You know, we don't want to be called further up and further in. And we also go with a very critical attitude. And I know I definitely suffer from this. Always criticizing and finding faults in things. Job, your spouse, your kids. And particularly in a church context, the pastor's sermon. How many times have you been walking out of church and people are giving it marks out of 10? Or pointing out what they would have changed? And there's one last thing I'd like to talk about before we wrap all of this up. And that's connecting it back to mere Christianity. Do you remember the chapter on hope? Is that mean the argument from desire chapter? Yes, that's the one. Okay, yeah. Lewis says, there are all sorts of things in this world that never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or think of some foreign country or take up some subject, they're longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. And he makes the point that he's speaking not about bad marriages, but the best of marriages. He says that there was something we grasped at in the first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. He says that the wife may be a good wife, the hotels and scenery might be excellent, and chemistry might be an interesting job, but something has evaded us. Now, doesn't that sort of sound like our hard-bitten ghost? He's been disappointed. But Lewis tells us that there are two wrong ways of dealing with this disappointment, and one right way. The first wrong way is to put the blame on the things themselves. You've got to go find a better wife, a better car, a better vacation. And if you think about our hard-bitten ghost, he's traveling everywhere, maybe because he's looking for a better monument, a better site. But he says that the second wrong way is what he called the way of the disillusioned sensible man. And now doesn't that really sound like our hard-bitten ghost? Lewis says he soon decides that the whole thing was moonshine, and he says it tends to make that person rather a prig and superior. And while that's not the worst approach, Lewis says that supposing infinite happiness is really there waiting for us, supposing that one can really reach the rainbow's end, in that case, it would be a pity to find out too late that we had stifled in ourselves the faculty of enjoying it. And that's what I think we've argued for this hard-bitten ghost. He stifled within himself the ability to enjoy heaven. Wow. And of course, Lewis says that the correct way to respond to this disappointment is the Christian way, that creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, while well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, while well, there's such a thing as water. A man feels sexual desire, while well, there's such a thing as sex. And here's the argument that you alluded to. If I find within myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And he goes on and says that if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. And that's what the hard-bitten ghost thinks. He thinks everything's a fraud. But Lewis says that probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Mm. The, the part of the second approach where you become so disillusioned you can't even experience joy anymore. That was brilliant because here's what is so incredible about this person. He was so disillusioned he can't experience joy 
to the point where when he was presented with the beginning of ultimate reality, which will lead to the truest of joys, he couldn't even begin to journey. He couldn't even sense that beauty in any of it. And that's what's dangerous if we become that type of person where we're so disillusioned with the world that when we're even, we are presented with the joy of Christianity and the beauty of Christianity, we'll reject it. And that's really scary. Okay, so with that, let's do some haikus. Mm-hmm. How many more chapters are there in this book? So essentially, how many more weeks do I have before I'm put through the hell of having to do this? <laughs> you mean the heaven of having to do this. Uh, <laughs> I think there's about six or seven. Oh, I've got to get mentally prepared. Well, here are my haikus for the hard-bitten ghost. Choose heaven or hell, and they've got you either way. The same firm in charge. Why ask me to change? Make me happy without it if you're so great. Heaven doesn't care. If it did, hell would vanish, wiped out by angels. I like that one the best. (laughs) And I actually also wrote one for Lewis after the ghost has left him. That was depressing. Can I really not stay here? Is it all a trick? And over the next couple of chapters, he's going to get an answer. I like that one too. It's first acknowledging that guy's way of life is depressing. Uh, and then, but then doesn't leave. He says, can I really stay here? Now, there's a question. Is it all a trick? You know, he's still open. So your listeners, keep downloading and subscribing. <laughs> yes. Even if, you thought, if you've listened to this and you're like, I thought I would like this, but I've gone down and I can't, that's because your taste buds are still bad and they need to be changed. It's not because we're bad. No, they just need to listen to more of us. That's exactly right. Well, listeners, please feel free to contact us through restlesspilgrim.net and Twitter and Instagram at Pints with Jack. We'd love the iTunes reviews. We'd love for you guys, if you haven't had a chance to go check out the YouTube videos, continue to subscribe to the channel leave comments. The more you guys engage us, the better. And then join us next week where we'll go further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers.